Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Good morning, Simon. How are you doing over there in... uh... What, what what do you call the place where you live? I mean, it's the south of England, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's the New Forest, so just on the the Hampshire Dorset border, and uh, some lagoons and harbours and the sea and uh, some great rivers to paddle on. So very very lucky to live where I am. But uh, today we're covering comprehensively a different area of the UK and uh, and one that's very popular with paddles at the moment. Yeah, London, home to about 9 million people, has um, traditionally enjoyed a large paddling fraternity with the Thames running straight through, with the APP World Tour coming through as well. And uh, Paul Hyman has had a company for almost 11 years, since 2010. It's called Active360, and he's been teaching people how to paddle, taking them on incredible events. Um, so he does so much. He really does a, a wide variety of things. It's not just learning or teaching people to paddle. He, As I said, he does events. Um, he helps the London Marathon. He's in uh, Thames Sup Relay, Source to Sea, all kinds of things which we'll cover in great detail in this uh, podcast. But he also does quite a few separate treats around Europe. Um, one down in Sardinia, he takes people over to Slovenia. Um, he's done a lot of work in India as well with stand-up paddles. So he really is an interesting guy to chat to. And one thing that we didn't discuss was a good mate of his called Bill... What's his name, Simon? It's uh, Bill Bailey. He's uh, probably the most um, uh, the most prominent well, British personality. Bill Bailey's uh, uh, an English comedian, and you can check out his stuff on YouTube. He's a phenomenally talented uh, musician, but he's really taken to um, SUP in a in a massive way. So much so that he's actually um, created his his own board, which is uh, looks a bit like something that James Bond would use. It's an incredible sort of stealth type board, but um, that there's and it's called the billboard. I love exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. And it, and it does look proper stealthy stuff. So you've got to be uh, careful with these very dark boards, leaving them out in the sun too much because you don't want them to explode. But um, I'm sure that's not an issue with this one. But, um, you know, it's great having, um, you know, a prominent uh, British celebrity uh, getting behind SUP. And Paul, as you say, is hugely prominent in London. He's got a, a number of sites that um, Active360 operate from. And I know he's got a really... Um, experienced bunch of coaches that, that work from him. So, um, yeah, really interested to uh, to hear this interview. Yeah, let's hear it for Paul Hyman. Mr. Paul Hyman, thank you so much for coming on to SUPFM Podcasts. Thank you, and good to speak to you, Nick. Yeah, how are you doing? And uh, obviously, we're recording this at the end of, um, when is it, March? April. April, good Lord. <laughs> you lost a month. And... Uh, yeah, <laughs> lost a month. I lost a lot during the lockdown. So we're all locked down, and you're getting beer delivered to you and everything like that. It's uh, how's how's life um, where you are? Yeah, it's good. I live I live on a boat on the Thames. Um, it's um, a big old Dutch barge. So um, and I'm on an island. So it's it's good. 
Um, but it's a bit frustrating seeing the river every day and being on the river and not, not using it. But we decided at the start of lockdown, uh, even though there's sort of slightly ambiguous um, rules, uh, if, you, if you live on water, um, it's perfectly safe to go out and use it. We decided to show solidarity with everyone else and, and not go out. So, yeah, that's it. And we're not, we stopped operating. Yeah, as, I've done the same thing as well. We stopped operating as soon as the lockdown uh, started. Um, so we're looking forward to getting out there and, and running sessions for people. And I'm sure people are raring to go. We're getting emails all the time and calls and saying, well, when are we going to start again? And can we hire a board or can we hire a canoe? So um, I think there's a lot of pent up demand out there. Yeah, well, I hope it um, resolves soon. Sooner rather than later, it's looking like it's it's going to happen for us, hopefully in the next week or so in Portugal. But um, has London always been your home? Uh, no, I, I was born and grew up in Bristol, um, a seafaring town. And then I moved to Portsmouth. I was a student in Portsmouth and um, in, really got into ocean stuff there. So sea kayaking and uh, a bit of sailing and... Um, anything that got me on water really and then then I moved to London and uh, oh sorry I yeah I moved to London and then had a spell in um, on the coast again back in Bournemouth uh, I got into scuba diving and and then back to London and then eventually back into kayaking so uh, I did that for years I had a look um, online and it appears that you were a teacher down at Portsmouth and then did a master's degree in sports science in the late 90s what prompted that change? Is that correct? And then what prompted I, that change? I did a, a, a sport and, um, yeah, a sports master's in the, in the 90s because I was just interested in finding out more about what I was already doing because I got into sports management and I was running sports development programs and sports centres and all sorts of stuff. So I decided to take a step back and learn a bit more about what I was doing and did an interesting dissertation and... And then carried on in that for a bit and then set up uh, my own sports project management business, um, H2O Sports. And then uh, in 2011, I set up uh, Active360 and, and started paddleboarding. Okay. I'd never been on a paddleboard until that point in time. I went to the boat show, um, met a few guys, met the starboard guys and um, decided to, I met, uh, met Alex from Nash, Alex Tobert and decided to start up uh, paddleboarding. I pretty well, by the time I left the show, I was on track and placed an order. But had you ever been on a board? Uh, yeah, I went on a board in the boat show, <laughs> in the pool. Yeah, so that was the very, very first time you stepped on a stand-up paddle? It was. I had a chance a few weeks before that because I was doing an update on my uh, canoe coaching course with British Canoeing. I was doing... Um, the new level three coaching uh, course, and I, uh, one of the guys there had a had a paddleboard, and he was coaching canoeing and kayaking from a board. So I just immediately saw this makes sense. This is so flexible, and I could do I could do all of this stuff, and I just knew I would take to it. So I didn't really I didn't really wait around and spend time training it out. Just jumped on a board in the show. Thought yeah, this is good. I could just see the potential for it. And I think if you if you're into into in, if you're into um, paddle sports generally in a big way, then you always take to stand up paddleboarding. It's just a extension. Any whitewater kayaker I've taught 
will just pick this up in no time. It's just, you know, they have the balance. They're not afraid of falling in water. So they learn very quickly. Sometimes flat water um, recreational paddlers don't necessarily pick it up so quickly. But but any, any all of my friends who are coaches or whitewater paddlers or surf kayak kayakers, they just take take to it within, you know, 20 minutes. You've got them standing up doing all sorts of stuff. So, and how did it feel when the first time you managed to get a stand-up paddleboard out into the wild? Uh, yeah, really good. I mean, I, uh, I, I did some stuff in London. We got a delivery of boards. We started doing stuff on the canals and on the Thames. And uh, then, um, I mean, I, I live on the tidal Thames. I've lived on the river for 20-odd years. So um, that was always my... Um, first love to get on the tide, the tideway as we call it, um, and uh, see how we could develop uh, you know, from canoeing. I'd well, by that time I'd set up three different canoe clubs over a ten-year period, and um, I wanted to see how we could develop this and, and make it um, really a really successful water sport in London, a big part of the London water sport scene which I think it's become now. A lot, you always see paddleboarders out there with kayakers and rowers. It's, it's sort of got its place in London now. So yeah, and then it was just a matter of taking it to other places. I mean, I got an opportunity early on to go down with the starboard guys and do some stuff in Devon. And we did stuff in uh, Dorset with Nash and mm-hmm. um, on the sea. So we started to, you know, to get that bit of all round experience. Then in three years... Sure, and just before we... Gone, Jump into the story of Active 360. What do you enjoy most of it? The different disciplines of SUP, you know, if it's touring or whitewater SUP or purely for fitness or racing or surfing or downwinding or foiling or even yoga. So, um, I mean, mostly what we do here is is recreational and um, sort of introducing people to the sport and a sort of quite low level, really, getting them getting them into it, developing skills. Um, personally, I enjoy expeditions, doing long treks, um, you know, just covering distance and taking in the scenery. So, you know, taking everything with me, that sort of thing. We, we did the Greenland expedition in 2013 and we've done lots of other stuff since that, uh, different distances, wild, wildish conditions and just enjoying it. Um, so that's, is it just you and me that enjoy that, or is it uh, probably one of the most popular forms of paddling these days? I think it's the biggest growth area because uh, that it's really suited to that. You could see, you know, if you have the right paddleboard, it's a bit like a sea kayak, you know, very flexible. You can take it off and just do interesting stuff, see interesting places from a board. And I think the fact that you're standing up, you see more. A uh, bit less flexible in what you can carry on a board, but you can be innovative and carry stuff, you know, in dry bags. And uh, the good thing is you can fly with an inflatable board. You can see so you can go anywhere in the world. You, you haven't got the same problems you've got taking a sea kayak around and to drive it everywhere. So, yeah, it's, it's a really flexible thing. And I think that's I think that's always going to be the, the growth area. Uh, we've done some whitewater kayaking, uh, whitewater paddleboarding recently, um, and enjoyed that. And we've just invested in ten uh, whitewater boards, so that's something I want to develop over the next year or two. Um, but I'm never. Yeah, we just interviewed some guys who paddled down the Zambezi. Nice. 
yeah. which was quite yeah. a demand. I mean, they didn't just paddle down. I think they did it in 2016, but yeah. amazing adventure. It really is. Yeah, incredible. Well, I think the whole whitewater thing has got a long way to go, um, both in running rivers and playing around on waves and just enjoying moving water. Um, we, we refer to it as um, uh, rough water sup rather than white water because a lot, a lot of the weirs here, the, the water off the weirs is a sort of very, um, it's fast moving and uh, strong currents, but it's not necessarily got, much, you know, you have waves, but it's not much, got, not got the same kick as white water, but it's really fun and challenging. Mm-hmm. Great. So can we dive into Active360, the company that you set up in 2011, almost 10 years ago? How was that idea formed? Was it late one night in a bar feverishly jotting down notes on the back of a paper serviette or was it in some other way? Well, I set up, uh, the company is actually called Think360 Sports. I set it up with a friend, Sambit Mohapatra, who's a, a businessman, entrepreneur, who I'm still a really good friend with. And we decided to, initially, the the company would work on various sports projects, or, uh, including a lot of IT type stuff, which he's really into. He's a techie and runs a, a company called Sionatech, which does uh, like virtual reality learning programs. So the idea was that it would be much more varied and Active360 would be the activity arm which would develop various sports, um, minority sports that we thought had legs to grow and we would take a sport and develop it and see where, where, where we could go with it. But I just got into the paddleboarding first, decided that I'd just focus on that. And so it just went that way and Sambit uh, decided that he would focus on his tech stuff and lead me to it. And so I brought in other friends to help me grow it and that's where it went. So, yeah, it wasn't really... Um, Okay. Yeah, it wasn't originally meant to be that, but I think just uh, I just felt that this sport had such potential in London, uh, particularly in London, but around mm -hmm. the world. And 2011, it was still quite small everywhere, really, apart from sure. some of the European countries and Australia, perhaps. Okay. The States. And naturally, the more people are exposed to the outdoor environment, the mm -hmm. more they'll take care of it. So what was your main mission in those early days, apart from just growing the sport? Did it have a an environmental awareness angle to it? Less so. I mean, I've always been an environmentalist, always been really interested in the environment since I was uh, a teenager, really, um, and did various environmental projects, energy conservation projects to, um, to reduce CO2 in buildings. And I did some work to create safer routes so that people could walk or cycle instead of drive and lots of different things through other work I was doing over the years. Um, so it sort of was natural to grow into that, but really what got me started was we started doing some cleanups of, first of all, the canals before we even did the Thames, uh, clearing up plastic and we realized what a state those places, those waterways were getting in with people uh, throwing plastic into them. So, um, yeah, the cleanups grew and then we did a mass cleanup and then, you know, the whole thing grew bigger. And now, really, the growth area is corporate uh, groups, companies, contacting us, wanting to take a group of their staff out, clean up a stretch of river, uh, learn about plastic pollution, develop their own awareness, you know, get some um, brownie points you, for, for clearing did up. Did you do a cleanup with... Um 
Sorry, did you do a cleanup with Burberry? Yeah, Burberry have done, I think, about five or six cleanups with us. Um, They're really uh, changing their image because uh, they had some really bad press a few years ago for burning, um, burning fashion that was uh, unfashionable, the stuff that had, it time limited, I guess. And um, so they they changed the, they've done a lot to change their image and. Uh, yeah, doing the cleanups was was part of that work, but also not only about their image, but also getting the message across to staff because they're a big company. So they need a lot of staff that they wanted to to talk to about the environment and where they're going. Mm, excellent. Well, it's great that they're getting a chance to to do better things. Yeah, a lot of companies are getting into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. I suppose um, it's an important part of being a, a global citizen. But how did your services develop over the years? I mean, you now operate from four different locations around London, is that right? Uh, so we have uh, Paddington, Kewbridge and Brentford. So those are our three uh, bases. And then we, we um, with, with two of our coaches, uh, we set up another company, uh, 360 Richmond. So we have this fourth base, but it's a separate company running it, 360 Richmond. And um, that was really okay. successful last year, right by Richmond Bridge, which is a great location. And there's quite an interesting thing. I know because paddling on the Thames, you're not allowed to just paddle on the Thames, are you? And have you developed this thing called the, the Thames Skills Knowledge? Yeah, so paddling on the Thames, uh, initially it wasn't... Um, restricted in London and when we started up the restrictions were just starting to bite because um, before 2.11 I think before 2.10 even people were just going down groups were going down into central London through through the city uh, with no buoyancy aids uh, ankle leashes which is really dangerous with the currents in the the river and all sorts of uh, practices that are not really safe for the river you know suited to open sea but not really right for a tidal river with strong currents. So the PLA started to see all that, started to restrict the sport, and eventually they put restrictions on that stopped you going below Putney. And at that point, we we challenged it, got an MP involved, said, look, this isn't fair to just jump on this sport because it's a new sport. You know, kayaking's allowed right through London. So the deal we struck was uh, with the the chief harbour master at the time was if we develop training for people so that they can go out and do it safely and confidently, um, then you'll let, let people go back through London. So that's where the 10 skills and knowledge came in. So if you go below Putney Bridge, you have to have done level one. And if you go down uh, below Chelsea Bridge, you have to have level two. And are you the only guys who offer that, to, uh, offer that course? We are. And the PLA, I mean, that when, when, the har- uh, when we set it up, the harbour master then said, look, I'm aware you've got a bit of a monopoly on this now, but anyone else can come in and set the training up as well and we'll work with anyone as long as they jump through the same hoops and show us that they can, can mm-hmm. do it. So it's, it's not exclusive. Are you thinking about taking that course online? Yes, that's what we've been developing during the lockdown. So we're working on... Uh, the Zoom platform initially, and we've uh, rewritten the whole course, extended the time because it was a four hour course, two hours on water, two hours off for the level one. 
So we've uh, extended it now to over six hours and it's now a modular course. So um, the, uh, uh, the theory modules can all be done in uh, 45 minute bites uh, and done um, through the through, uh, online platform. And then the, um, uh, the practical will still be done on the river. So they'll still get to go out and we'll do stuff on the river, but more of it can be done without actually traveling to a base and sitting in a classroom. I think people aren't gonna to wanna to sit in classrooms over the next year, particularly because you know, it means sitting close to people. And I think that that's always gonna have some risk. But I think long-term this could be really good because um, why travel a long way just to sit and do a theory part of a course, um, which you, when you don't need exactly. to. Yeah, so it'll say it, it could it's save so travel. Yeah, yeah, and it can it means we can spread it out over a, a period of time. People can do it over several weeks. Uh, they don't have to give up half a day or a day to to come and do a course. They can they can do it in in bites, and I think that'll suit some people. We still may run the classroom courses eventually. We may go back to offering that as well. But at the moment, we're thinking the online could be a a way to go. And there's no practical component at all. Uh, there is. You know, there is. There'll still be um, a um, an element on water, but that'll happen after they've done all the theory. And we'll make we'll make as much available online as possible, so that they they can go out on the water, do a trip, uh, see the stuff that they've been learning online in situ, so they can understand it and feel it and be be part of the river. Great. So there are some good things that come out of this horrendous virus. How so? Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a multitude of amazing projects that you've started or been a part of. Did it start with the Fortitude London Submarathon back in 2012, I think, or maybe even before that? Uh, that was the first big event we did, I think. I mean, we, we'd, we'd done some events before that, but that was the first big one. And we, we were asked to help Fortitude um, they were called Momentum before that. Before that, and then so that when they when they approached us, and they wanted to raise money for for this uh, cancer charity, uh, colon cancer, which which was um, something I was really interested in because my grandmother had uh, died of it, and um, so I got the opportunity to work with them. We set up the marathon and ran, I think, six marathons in the end, and well, the last one raised over a hundred thousand. I think it was a hundred and ten thousand pounds for this wow. charity so that's unbelievable yeah the, the last one uh was uh year, not this year uh, not last year the year before and it was in honor of uh a paddler who'd a fundraiser who then went on to uh, his cancer returned and he died uh but he was very brave and uh, did lots of fundraising even in his his last weeks and months hmm. Sure. So are they not doing it again? Because 26 miles or, or 42 kilometers is a long way. Yeah, I think they're, they're now, because they ran uh, a, a, the same event for a number of years, uh, they're having a, a step back. They do other fundraising events like uh, long cycle rides and they're having a rethink on the, the on-water thing because the last one was just like such a big, big event. It was hard to beat it, I think. So um, I think they'll be back with something, but they're just taking a break from it this year. Um, and I think, we, well, we've got a number of fundraisers um, that are now uh, sort of ready to go ahead. We've got uh, Waves for Change, uh, which would be in July. 
um, but we're not sure whether the restrictions will have eased in time. So we're hoping to run it, and that'll be an, uh, that'll be another um, long distance paddle raising funds for a charity in South Africa, Townships Charity for young people. Um, and there are other ones in the pipeline that have made bookings provisionally, but we're not sure whether we'll be able to do them this year. It's, you know, everything's in flux at the moment. So hopefully we'll run some. Yeah, absolutely. And you say you've had, um, you, you mentioned South Africa, and you've also traveled to India and been involved with various projects out there, including building wooden paddleboards and things. How did that come about? And was that also um, a fund? We did the, Lon- no, that was, uh, we were asked to go out and help with the, the India Surf Festival and did that for a few years. That was in uh, Odisha, formerly called Orissa, uh, which is on the east uh, coast of India, near the, in the Bay of Bengal. And we did some expeditions around Chilika Lagoon, which is the second biggest lagoon in the world. And um, yeah, generally had a lot of fun. And I went out again last year. Last year I went to the south of India um, and looked at, uh, there's an event there that they wanted me to get involved in that we which again is a big surf and sup festival um down in the far south so yeah i've sort of got a bit of connection with india we may uh, hopefully we'll go back there one day once everything gets back a bit more to normal yeah i think but it seems like you've got a a lot of international connections you don't just do things in london and uh the tall ship Lady Avenue sailing around the Hebrides is, an, is another event that you do. Is that a yearly thing? That is, uh, we've, we've run that four times now. Uh, we won't be doing it this year because uh, there are a whole load of question marks uh, in the short term about people being on a ship together, a small, uh, a, a small space relatively. Um, but I think it will bounce back. We hope it will bounce back next year. But that's just one of the best trips I've ever done because you get to you get to go on this tall ship, which is built by a good friend, uh, Stefan Fritz, who um, converted a tug uh, that he found in Amsterdam to into a tall ship. So she's she's an amazing ship. Um, you'd never believe she wasn't built as a tall ship. But, um, and we go around to different islands and and paddle on islands and paddle in uh, locks and see interesting places. Fingal's Cave we've done a few times. Nice. And um, did anything crazy happen on one of those trips at all? Uh, well, the wildlife is probably the craziest thing, like having a, a, a pod of dolphins following the boat along and, and going under the, under the ship and alongside uh, and just following under full sail, which was quite an incredible experience. But uh, I'm not... Is it very quiet when it's under full sail? It's a sort of, yeah, it is a sort of quiet. I mean, there's a whistling sound as she goes along, you know, and the wind in the sails, because she's got a big area, a big sail area. Um, and, uh, yeah, really, really fascinating ship to, to sail. She, she'll, she'll go over a long way before she capsizes because she's got so much weight in the bottom, being a, uh, formerly a tug. You know, with, with all this, uh, a big, big, a uh, lot of ship below the waterline. So really interesting ship. And probably would self-right, although no one's tried to do that. No one's, no one's taken her over yet. And I hope no one's ever tried to capsize it. No, not yet. <laughs> but for those people who don't know, where are the Hebrides? Uh, Hebrides are the Western Isles, uh, n- uh, n- north of uh, mainland Scotland. 
So we sail from Oban, uh, Oban on the uh, west coast, and then we um, we head out from there and different groups of islands. So you have the the inner Hebrides and the outer Hebrides. We we've, we've tended to stay around the inner Hebrides uh, so that we have more paddling time. If you if you sail out to the outer Hebrides, you spend a lot more time sailing. But a lot of it's it's all made up as we when we get there. We have rough ideas what we want to do, but then we have to wait and see what the wind is doing and you know what the, the direction and the strength of wind. So it's one of those trips you can never set out a. a um, an exact itinerary you just have a rough idea what you're going to do but but every every trip has been great and they've never disappointed there must be the beauty of it being moving around all the time but uh, Oban is obviously um, not just a town it's a whiskey as well so does whiskey pay a large part of that trip we have been known to call into distilleries and pick up some samples some some bottles yeah and that becomes part of the trip because so, it would be silly not to really. it would be rude not to <laughs> Sardinia is another amazing location you venture off to occasionally. What are some of your best experiences out there? Um, yeah, Sardinia has really uh, been interesting. We we got to know some people um, on the, um, the the live on the the small island off Sardinia, uh, San Pietro, and um, they run a a, a sub school, sub adventures. Um, so we, we started to work with them uh, closely and take groups out there. And it's, really, it's a lovely little island. Um, the beauty of a small island rather than main, the main Sardinian island is that you, you always have shelter from the wind because you've, you have some sort of big high areas on the island that give you shelter. So if, if the wind's blowing from the west, you just paddle on the east and so on. So we tend to move around the island depending on where the wind direction is. But this, the Mediterranean in the spring and autumn when we go can be quite rough. Um, but you can always find shelter on San Pietro. So there's always paddling. I, it, we never really miss a day. Um, sometimes you get surf and we get to do the sea, uh, sea caves and cliffs and uh, all sorts of interesting places on the coast. And the food's incredible. Sardinian food is just like an extension of Italian food. Fantastic. Sounds, sounds like an amazing holiday. You mentioned sea caves. Um, is it quite an amazing, spectacular coastline being mountainous? It is, yeah. There, there are sea caves to the north of San Pietro that are always really interesting to go in. Um, it's, it's sort of it's very rocky on the north with big cliffs, uh, the north and the west of the island, and then the uh, south of the island is more um, sandy beaches. So it's it's in, interesting. Small island, you could paddle around it in about a day and a half. It's not a big area, but that's nice because everything's easy to get to, and there's a, there's enough coastland to less uh, coastline to make it interesting. You're not doing the same stuff every day. Sounds like the perfect location. I think I should chuck that in my bucket list. Always wanted to go to Sardinia. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, sticking with the S's, Slovenia has also been a place that you guys head off to. Yes, Marco and Samo uh, invited us over a few years ago, and um, I've been encouraging people to go there. They do some amazing trips around um, uh, the area, the Socha River, which is, which I'd only ever seen as a white water river. The the upper Socha is a famous um, whitewater destination for, for kayakers and uh, what I didn't realise was you had this beautiful lower Socha which is uh, 
slow running through gorges, really beautiful. Um, so um, they showed me that and Lake Bled and uh, other lakes and um, the Ljubljana River. Um, so yeah, really lovely place. Again, fantastic food, good climate, lovely people. Yeah, definitely worth a visit. Mm, sounds great. So coming back to home, the did you organise the River Thames Source to Sea stand-up paddleboard relay event through Central London in 2016? Uh, yeah, a few years ago, uh, we were involved in a thing called the Thames Relay for some years before that, and we were invited to be part of it, to have a sup part of a longer uh, relay, which had people relaying a bottle of water from the source of the Thames down to the sea. And so we we played a part in that for a few years, and then the 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 uh, funders, the organisers, decided to scrap the event. So we said, well, why don't we just take it over and run a source to sea sup event? And uh, we did that, and it was great fun. So we divided the Thames up into legs, and had different people paddling different legs, but all on all on paddle boards. Uh, some of them were big groups, you know, maybe ten people doing a leg, and some of them were two people doing a leg um, and people traveled from a long way i think the furthest was from africa someone came over to to take part so it sounds like events play a large part in the business of actor 360 but is the core business teaching people how to paddle on london's waterways? yeah that's the bread and butter you know just taking people out to to give them lessons and uh their first sup experience or improving their skills that sort of stuff that's our day-to-day stuff but the events are, are just always really interesting, I guess, tiring and um, quite often halfway through them. You th- well, in the run-up to the event, certainly I'm thinking, why did I get myself into this? Um, but then when the event happens and it's, it's, it's worked, um, it's a great feeling of, great, very satisfying feeling that you've run an event and it's raised a load of money. Or uh, one of the last big ones we ran was um, a mass river cleanup with 250 people clearing up plastic from uh, Kew to Richmond, for example. And uh, that's called Get On Board and that'll bounce back. Probably not this year, but maybe next year. Um, they're going to try and make it bigger and better. Um, so... Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting one. But there, there are always uh, different types of events, different different angles. But, but they're all they're all interesting. Yeah, I can totally relate to what you're saying. Is when in the lead up to the event, it's like I really don't wish I could carry on with this. And then after the event, you think, oh wow, that was fantastic. Let's do another one next yeah, I year. Always, I always have this sinking feeling that something's going to go wrong, and this will be the event that everyone will remember us for. Um, because it'll be a disaster and the weather will be awful and we'll be stretched to the limits. And and then you get to the day and it all just falls into place like clockwork and you think, yeah, it was okay, we planned it. <laughs> well, that actually happened to me because we did three years of the Guardiana Challenge down in the southeastern border of Portugal and Spain. Lovely. And it was fantastic and it was growing and growing and growing. Every year we're getting more. And eventually we had, I don't know, something like 300 people paddling or... And uh, and the year after that, there was this horrible hurricane, crazy storm predicted for the exact day, and we had to cancel. So that's when I, that's when I dropped it and said, "Okay, that's it. You've had enough. Game over." <laughs> I'm gonna. You're gonna have to invite me over. <laughs> I'm really keen. I've never been to Portugal. Been to Spain numerous I can't times. Believe it. No, I know. I I've been invited a few times. Never quite made it, but it's on the, very close to the top of my list. Well, standing invitation. You're always welcome. Thank you. Um, just a quick few questions about the SUP industry in the UK. 
How many people would you say are enjoying stand-up paddle in the UK and worldwide these days? Wow, that's a really hard one. Um, we've, we don't have any exact figures. Um, I've talked to Starboard about it a few years ago because I was trying to, to find out. And there's certainly tens of thousands of people in uh, the UK have boards. Whether they're regular paddle boarders uh, is, is interesting. Um, the, the, the race scene is, is actually very small. I think under probably under a thousand people taking part. Um, but it's really hard to gauge it because a lot of people are just doing it. Like kayaking, they, they go out there and just paddle. With kayaking, you have British canoeing, canoeing and kayaking, sorry, but you have British canoeing covering it. And um, I have been the NGB for years. So you've got some idea, you've got an idea of the number of people in clubs and the number of people uh, coaching and doing it, you know, affiliated. But even with, with those sports, there's still loads of people who just have a canoe in the back garden and they take it out once or twice a year. So it's really, it's really hard to gauge numbers, but I'm certain it's growing. We're seeing more and more people every year out on water. Um, the Thames now, a lot of individuals are starting to go out. We see them just you know randomly out there, um, which is great. Um, sometimes... I worry a little bit that they don't really look like they know what they're doing, um, which is a bit worrying on the Thames because it's uh, the tidal Thames is quite a tricky body of water, but the number of incidents is low, so at least they they seem to be looking after themselves. So, yeah, very hard to gauge numbers, but we know it's growing. No, it is tough. Yeah, and um, I was speaking to the CEO of the APP World mm-hmm. Tour, and he was. I mentioned to him that there were probably anywhere between 17 and 35 million surfers around the mm-hmm. world. And he seemed to believe that there were probably a similar amount of stand-up paddlers in the world. I'm not sure if it's actually reached that. Would you agree with I that? Would have thought, I would have thought it's overtaken um, surfing now in terms of numbers because SUP has so many disciplines. Uh, you've, got, you've got the race scene, which I said is quite small, but you've got people doing expeditions, you've got people just going to beaches um, and playing around on boards and SUP holidays, SUP yoga, there's just so many different branches, whitewater SUP. So if you take all that into account, I think it's it's a lot bigger. I'd be surprised. I mean, surfing is, is amazing, but it's, uh, it's very limited by the number of breaks you have, the number of uh, suitable waves. Um, and you know surfboards are hard boards so carrying them around you know involves having a car or living close to water sup is more flexible and it covers so many different things now i think i think if it hasn't outgrown surfing i think it will quite soon yeah it makes sense doesn't it it's very very logical progression so many people talk about a slowdown in the uptake of the sport from the radical growth that experienced from 2010 to 2015 i think this is mainly the um the suppliers of standard paddle boards. Do you feel that the sport is, is still growing uh, healthily? I think so. Um, there's always the worry that uh, it will go the way of, say, windsurfing, where you had this you know massive uh, rise in the sport and then it plateaued and declined. But I think... Um, I, don't th- I think if people are careful with the sport and don't spoil it by flooding it with... Uh, really cheap, bad equipment, which is a bit of a worry at the moment. There's a lot of stuff being sold in supermarkets that's quite poor quality. Um, I think if that 
if that sort of fades away a bit and people support people making good equipment a bit more and willing to, to buy better equipment, at least for their second purchase, um, then I think the sport could it could just keep growing. It's so flexible and so... Um, there's so many so many aspects of it that you can do. It's 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 very much like canoeing or kayaking, but you have this. Um, the big advantage is you can make a an inflatable paddleboard that performs very well, and quite quite often better than some of the hardboards. Although the best hardboards are always going to be better better than the best inflatables. The quality of the the good inflatables being made now is is very high, and I think that will the technical innovation will will keep people in the sport, keep people interested, um, and the the flexibility of being able to carry a board around in a backpack, and they're getting lighter, so it's even easier to carry them. So they're performing well, but but they're easy to carry on your back, and they pack up smaller. Yeah, I think Red's making a half size one now, isn't it? Or it just doubles up into a half size. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many, so much flexibility in paddleboards. So I think that that will keep things going a lot longer. And if you compare it with windsurfing, um, windsurfing like like any surfing requires certain conditions. Um, paddleboarding sort of works in most conditions. You know, if if it's really windy, you can get a sail, um, one of these subsails, and play around with that, and do a downwind paddle. If it's flat and no wind, then that's brilliant. So it's just so flexible. You've got so many aspects to it. So I think that's what will keep it going. And it's a lot cheaper than windsurfing as well, because all that kit, I mean, I remember I used to windsurf back in South Africa, and um, it's expensive, and you break it all the time. So it's really a lot of expensive kit. Yeah, whereas you can buy a, I mean, if you can't afford a really good new paddleboard, you can buy a good second-hand one for four or 500 pounds, so, you know, something that's really good. And you can get a good second or a cheap Chinese board if you want. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, the Chinese, <laughs> the Chinese boards, uh, the stuff that's coming direct from the factories, is actually getting better. They're learning how to make stuff and market it. But I think you got to be a bit careful. There's some rubbish coming out. Some, you know, cheap doesn't uh, doesn't always mean bad, but it can it can do. So I'd be a bit wary of some of that stuff. We had our fingers burned years ago when we bought some cheap stuff and tried it out and uh, regretted it, realised that it was just um, not what we want. So we, we, we tend to stick with the, the bigger established names now, but we, we're always willing to give new brands a try. You know, if people come up and want to show us their brand, we're always happy to give it a try and give them some feedback. And if it's good enough, we'll, uh, we'll you know, get interested in helping them sell it. So let's go to uh, more expensive boards, the race scene. How did the APP World Tour affect business for you in London? Did it uh, create any more exposure or not really? Um, not a great deal. I mean, if I felt, you know, people watched it. There were a, a small number of spectators, but it didn't really get big uh, local coverage. Um, so I think I think things like the Sup Marathon probably worked better for us and, and the, the Mass Paddle event that I mentioned in Richmond probably worked better in terms of getting participation going. Um, it was a great event to watch. I was really um, fortunate to be able to go and watch it on a launch and really enjoyed it. And it was fascinating watching all these top racers come through London. But whether it expanded the sport locally, I think, mm, difficult one. Not, not sure. Maybe, maybe globally there was some impact. And I think the ambition for that event is, uh, 
is great and um, you know good luck to them if they can develop it into something big yeah I hope they I hope they do they go well because I think they've had some problems a couple of years back and um, it's a noble thing to try and create a world tour and it's an expensive thing as well and obviously with COVID-19 I think that could be hazardous for them to try and carry on because you know sponsors might dry up <laughs> yeah I think it's going to be a tricky year for lots of things but this the sort of the smoke will clear and maybe in a year's time things will look different mm-hmm well, I hope it clears sooner rather than later for you. And good luck with uh, SUP in London. It's it's lovely to see somebody doing such an amazing job in one of the world's capitals. So thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. And I uh, hope to see you in Portugal soon. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.